How's everybody doing this morning? Man, how great is it to... Um, so some of my favorite times in my walk with Jesus have been up early uh, with coffee, which I brought my own coffee, um, studying God's word with a group of men. And so, I mean, I, I love this venue. Uh, I love the chance to be with other guys and um, trying to hear from, from the Lord. Let me, let me pray for us and uh, we'll dive in because we've got some work to do. Father, thank you for an opportunity uh, to be with these men this morning. Thank you for guys who set their alarms early before the sun is up to be here to learn uh, what it is that you might instruct us and teach us and convict our hearts through your timeless inspired word. Thank you for the book of Judges and for uh, just how relevant it feels today. I pray that in the next little bit of time together corporately and then as we break into small groups, that your spirit would be working in our hearts to provide encouragement where we need encouragement. God, and I know some of us need to be encouraged. I pray for um, conviction where there are some of us that need to be convicted of behavior or attitudes or sin patterns that are keeping us from being all of the man that you have created and called us to be. Uh, so I pray that your spirit would do whatever work needs to be done. I pray that you would remind us all of what is true about us, what is true about you, and uh, that that might um, continue to radically transform our hearts uh, this Thursday. So we thank you for your son, Jesus. And we give all of this to him. We lay it at his feet, and we hope that it would be pleasing to him, that it would be honoring to him and his sacrifice. In his name we pray, amen. All right. Uh, so just as a reminder, tonight there is a, uh, a parenting conversation um, event that we're doing. Uh, the elders are, are leading with some of our student ministry leaders on anxiety, an evening with the elders to discuss dealing with worry and anxiety in kids and teens. And so I've got uh, seven kids, and so I've got one that's almost 17, and I've got one that's three, and, so, and, and everything in between. And so um, you know, four of my kiddos are in junior high and high school. And so this anxiety topic is, is a real topic. And uh, so I would encourage you, if you are a parent of teens or kids that are coming up to be teens, or maybe you're a grandparent of some teenagers, um, that this might be hopefully a useful resource for you to be encouraged and to be reminded. So that's tonight at uh, 7 p.m. It's going to be in the main auditorium. So I trust you will take advantage of that opportunity as you see fit. Well, we are marching right along in the book of Judges, this train wreck of a book that God has given us in his word. And, and the, the section that I have been asked to unpack, as I read it uh, and prepared for this morning, the, the quote that popped into my mind was from Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. You guys remember that from high school lit class, A Tale of Two Cities? And the book opens up, uh, Dickens' book opens up, right? Famous first lines. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us and we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven and we were all going direct the other way. And I just, when I read this passage that, uh, that we're in this morning, I thought to myself, there, are, um, there is this, speck of glimmer, this little bit of light, and then, and then all of a sudden the thing pivots and there's just this darkness. And you've got uh, together this light and this darkness 
uh, in this passage. And so really I was asked to take chapters eight and nine, uh, Gideon and Abimelech. But in order for me to really do that well, I need to back up just a smidge because uh, to talk a little bit about what Daniel talked about last week, because this passage really, this, this section goes chapter six, one to the end of chapter nine. And it doesn't make, it won't make sense if we completely break them in two. So Daniel did a great job last week of uh, teaching about Gideon the judge. And I want to kind of piggyback on that a little bit. In this section of scripture, there are really three movements. We see in chapter 6, 1 to 8, 3, which is what Daniel discussed last week, we see Gideon the judge. So Gideon as God called him to be. This morning, we're going to spend some time in chapter 8, verse 4 to 35, and we're going to see Gideon the king. And I've got king in air quotes. Well, it's actually not air quotes. It's quotes there. This is air quotes. I've got Gideon the king in quotes because um, Israel was not supposed to have a king. And we see Gideon... um, The way he lives his life, he begins to function like a king. And then in chapter 9, we're going to see Abimelech, and we're going to see that the people actually made him their king. And so we're going to see Gideon the judge, Gideon the king, air quotes, and then Abimelech the king. And as we move these chapters, you're going to see there's going to be this moral decline that's going to happen over the next couple chapters um, and so what you see is if, if the green line in this little handy-dandy chart represents the level of goodness or the degree of goodness that starts off in chapter 6 uh, as Gideon the judge, you're going to see over the next three chapters that degree of goodness is going to go down steeply and that degree of badness or evil is going to start, uh, you know, in terms of the leadership, it's going to start pretty low. Gideon's in a really good spot at the beginning of chapter 6. And you're going to see the arc of that is going to skyrocket where the, when we get to the end of chapter nine, you're going to be like, what in the world has happened to these people? And one of the devices that the, uh, the, the narrator, the author gives us is, you know, is by word choices. And we're going to see in these three chapters, I've got the use of the word Lord. So in the book of Judges, the term Lord, L-O-R-D, if you see it in your Bible and it's all caps, that is the uh, Bible interpreter's way of showing. That's, the, that's Yahweh. That it refers to the covenant God of Israel. And you can see in these chapters, these four chapters, when we're in the Gideon the judge chapter, you can see that the term, the covenant name of the Lord is used a bunch of times. But as we work our way through the passage, through this section, you're going to see that the, Lord, the term Lord, the, uh, the narrator's focus on God, the covenant God as relationship to the people is going to diminish to when we get to Abimelech the king. This is the only chapter in the whole book of Judges where the covenant name of God is not used at all. And then the, the author of the book, it's a literary device to help us understand that, that this moral decline represents, is tied to a withdrawal of the people to follow their covenant God, okay? And so when we get to Judges 6, let's start there. We see uh, Gideon, as you guys know, as Daniel did a great job last week, was called, right? And he had with 300 men. And so the the narrator, if you're a Jew in the uh, Old Testament times and you're reading this passage, right? Because this wasn't like Fox News happening live. This was recorded some years later. And the nation read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, right? So the Jewish people would be familiar with this body of work. 
And the, the writer has this clear connection to Moses. And if you look at the similarities between the call of Moses and the call of Gideon, you see this huge overlap of similarities in the way that the author's written the book. We see in Moses and Exodus 3, we see the setting is that God's people are being afflicted by the Egyptians. In Judges 6, we see that God's people are being afflicted by the Midianites. We see that Moses in Exodus 3 was hiding from Pharaoh. Remember, he'd, he'd killed a man and, and he'd gone to hide. And we see Gideon that's hiding from the Midianites. We see that Moses was tending his flocks, tending his father-in-law Jethro's flocks. And we see that uh, Gideon is working for his father, Joash. We, we read that the Lord tells Moses in Exodus 3, I have sent you. This is a divine appointment. And we see God say the same thing to Gideon. I have sent you. Moses communicates, as you remember, in Exodus 3, he communicates his inadequacies. I'm, they're not going to follow me. I'm not a good speaker. Blah, 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 blah. I don't want to go. And we see Gideon communicating similar inadequacies. Who am I? I'm, I'm from the least tribe in Israel. Who am I that you would call me, Lord? We see the Lord reassure Moses, I will be with you. We see the Lord reassure Gideon. I will be with you. I have called you and I will go with you. We see with Moses, there's a sign of reassurance, right? Moses has the staff and God says, throw it down and it becomes a snake, remember? And Moses picks it back up. And we see with Gideon, there's a sign as well that this fire in, in uh, Judges 6.21 that consumes the meat. There's this tangible expression of God's proof that, look, I am with you, go. And then we see in Exodus 3 that Moses experienced great fear at seeing God. And we see that Gideon has the exact same fear at seeing God. And he's afraid God's going to kill him. And God says, I'm not going to kill you. And so the literary effect of this comparison of Moses with Gideon, if you're an Old Testament reader of your, of your Bible, is to create really high expectations for Gideon. Gideon is the new Moses that's going to lead God's people out of the oppression of the Midianites. And so you're reading you're going into chapter six, if you're a Jew, and you're feeling pretty optimistic about what you're about to read because you know how it went under Moses and how Moses delivered the people from uh, Pharaoh. And so you're, you've got this pretty optimistic thing there. And we see uh, in Judges 1, a couple of the highlights is that the Lord raises up Gideon as the deliverer, which Daniel <coughs> talked about. And then with 300 men, defeats this huge Midianite army. And so when you get to the end of chapter seven, you're feeling pretty good. It actually, and so just, to, I, I think this section ends at 8-3. Uh, I think that section where, the, uh, where Gideon has to kind of appease his brothers about, hey, why didn't you call us? I think that belongs to the prior section, so that's why I've lumped it in here. So when you get to the end of Judges 8-3, we're feeling pretty, pretty good about Gideon as a new Moses. But, but the story's not over for Gideon, is there? There's a second movement of, in, this, in this narrative, and that starts in 8 chapter four. And so there are some highlights in that section. We'll talk through some of the highlights. So, and, and we see Gideon the king. He's gonna transition from Gideon the judge, rightly defending the nation of Israel before God's enemies because he was called with a specific task. And we see him operating within that task, within the confines of that task, and things go well. And we slip into chapter eight. We're gonna start to see uh, the, the wheels are gonna start to shake a little bit. Actually, wheels are gonna shake a lot. We see that uh, Gideon, we discover that Gideon has this personal vendetta against Ziba and Zalmuda. And so he crosses the Jordan, Judges 8. It says 8, 4, and 5. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over the Jordan. 
he and 300 men who were with him. They were exhausted, but he kept pursuing them. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, which is a town, an, an Israeli town, please give me loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing not the Midianites, but two people, Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And so you're like, wait, why is he crossing the Jordan? And the Jordan River in this passage, that's, that's our cue of, hey, he is now stepping a little bit outside the bounds of what God called him to do. And we discover why he's so hell-bent on these two men in Gideon and Judges 8 when he finally catches them. And so Gideon says to Ziba, and this is 8, 18 to 21, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you were, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled, resembled the son of a king. And he said to them, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw a sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of the cannibals. And so we see, we get a clue into why Gideon uh, crosses the Jordan. Because he's on a personal vendetta against these two men. Why? Because they killed some of his family members. That was outside the scope of what God called him to do. They were to clear the land. And these men fled, crossed the Jordan, and they're gone. And he pursued them because he had a personal vendetta against him. The other highlight in this chapter that shows us that things are not well is we see how Gideon treats his fellow Israelites in the town of uh, in, uh, Sukkos, he, uh, he goes as he's chasing these men. He goes, you guys read the passage, right? He goes looking for provision because he's riding his men hard. And the, the, the men at both of these towns rebuff him. Now, that was wrong. Those towns, those were fellow Israelites and they should have been able to provide provisions. They were afraid if they helped out Gideon and Gideon didn't get those two guys, that, hey, what if those guys come back? And they're like, hey, you can help the Gideon out. And then they would suffer more. But their role as fellow Israelites, they should have stepped up to help Gideon and the men, but they didn't. And what does Gideon do? After he uh, catches and kills Zeba and Zalmunna, he returns and he exacts revenge on his fellow Israelites. Gideon becomes the first judge to turn his sword on his fellow Israelites. And that's gonna give us a glimpse of where, glimpse of where we're headed in chapter nine. And so we see Gideon not acting like a judge, acting like a king, taking his own personal vengeance out there to follow these men, executing judgment on his own people, putting them to death uh, in, in uh, Sukkoth and depending upon, uh, in, um, in Peniel, and then in Sukkoth, depending upon how you read what he did to them with the, with the whole um, thorns and thistles things, he may have killed them as well. And so we see Gideon not treating his fellow Israelites well, not like a judge. He treats them like a, like a king who sits on high and does whatever he wants to. And then we see at the end of Gideon, uh, at the end of chapter 8, we see Gideon saying the right things but doing the wrong things. And we see that in 8.22 to 32. And how do we see that? Because these guys, they come to Gideon and say, you saved us, Gideon, by the way. Gideon didn't save them. Their covenant God saved them through Gideon. And there's a big difference. You guys should be a king. Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson. Become a, a perpetual line in our land. And Gideon says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to rule over you in verse 23. And I will not, not let my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon says 
the right thing. That is the right thing to say. You don't need a king. God is your king. If you follow him, it will go well. You don't need a, a human being to be your king. And 24, and Gideon says to them, let me make a request of you. I mean, while we're here, guys, every one of you give me earrings from a spoil, for they had golden earrings because they're Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will totally give you, absolutely. So they spread a cloak, every man threw in earrings, and the weight of the gold was about 1,700 shekels of gold. That's a lot of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments on the, on the pendants and the, uh, the purple garment, da, 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 da. So they give him all this gold. Verse 27, Gideon makes an ephod out of it, an ephod out of it, and put it in his city in Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land of rest, and the land had rest for 40 years in the day of Gideon. By the way, you guys may recognize that phrase, the land had rest. You've seen that before so far? Yes? This is the last time you're going to see it. It doesn't come up in the book of Judges, right? Because it's getting worse. As the book of Judges goes through, it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And then we see in Judges 8, so Gideon says, I won't be your king, but give me this gold and I'm going to make an ephod out of it, this garment that was supposed to be uh, worn by the priests, and that garment's going to become this place of idolatry, and uh, um, Israel's going to whore after it, and it's going to cause Gideon's own family to stumble. And in Gideon, in chapter, in verses 30 to 31, we see Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and called him Abimelech, which means my father is king. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Orpah. And so we see Gideon saying, I don't want to be your king. And yet all of his behaviors from that point on act a whole lot like a king. He gets many wives. He's a concubine. So God's word, uh, if you're a Jew, you knew those were not the way that you were supposed to live. He names his kid Abimelech, which says, my father's a king. And so though he's not officially anointed as a king, we see this huge character defect um, spring up in Gideon. And we see what we learn from uh, Gideon is that, uh, um, so we're not feeling great at the end of the chapter here. And the end of Gideon's story be, uh, ends where it starts, okay? And so uh, there's a, um, if you study literature or great literature, there's a thing called ring composition. It's a literary device that writers will use to help tie a story together, right? It's like a bookend. And we see in Gideon a classic ring composition. Where did Gideon start? At the beginning, he was in his hometown of Orpah. And we're introduced to Gideon, and we learn that he's come, he comes from a family of idolaters, remember, because he has to pull down his father's uh, Baal idol and the Asherah pole. Uh, and he pulls him down, and he cuts him down. So that's where we meet Gideon. And where do we leave Gideon? We leave him back in his hometown, he has set up an ephod, which becomes an idol for his people and his family. And he is at the exact place where he started. Except now, he's not a source of blessing to the nation. He's a source of discouragement and a snare to the people. And so we see Gideon's life wrapped by where he started from an idolatrous place in his hometown and where he ends in an idolatrous place in his hometowns. He was called to be a deliverer. And he ended his life as something other than that. And it had devastating consequences for him, his family, and his nation. And so when we leave Gideon, there are a couple of takeaways that I want us to focus on. 
One is that when we fail to be the men that God has called us to be, it has devastating consequences. And so I'm asking you, men, do you know who you are called to be? We are called to be men who are fully devoted followers of Christ. Luke 9, Jesus says, follow me. And this man says, Lord, let me go bury my father. Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said to him, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my homes. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We are to be men who are devoted to Christ. We are men who are to be deeply connected to God's people. 1 Corinthians 12, the body does not consist of one member, but of many members. The foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would make it any less part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them, as he would, uh, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? There are many parts but one body. You and I were called, are called, to be deeply connected to God's people. The body of Christ does not function effectively if you and if I am not contributing our gifts, our time, our talents, and our treasures to the work. It doesn't work the way God intended it to be. That's who we're called to be. We're called to be fiercely committed to personal holiness. First Peter 1. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but, but as he has called you as holy, you also be holy in your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Men, we are, we are called to be men of holiness, spirit-filled men of holiness. And if we're looking at porn, if we're lusting after the flesh, the, you know, our secretary, our coworkers, if we're chasing uh, something that we think is gonna fill our heart with the satisfaction we need, we are not being who God has called us to be. We are called to, passion, to be passionate in our love and our service for others. Philippians 2 reminds us, looking at Jesus, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not uh, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Men, what will change this world is not how much you can bench press. It's not what's on your income, your tax statement about your, your income. It's not your zip code. It's not how many kids you have. It's not your vacation home. It's not the car you drive. What changes the world is the way we love other people and pursue Jesus. That's it, period. There's no comma, there's no parentheses. And I, for us to be who God has called us to be, we can be Gideon the judge or we can be Gideon the king. And who are we gonna be, guys? When we fail to be the men God has called us to be, it has devastating consequences. And the narrative keeps rolling. We see Judge the Movement 3, Abimelech the King. This chapter, this train wreck of a chapter in God's word, where the, the covenant name of God is not used at all. We see that uh, Gideon's son, this chapter can be broken into three sections. There's a transgression where Abimelech um, kills his brothers. There's a transgression where the men of Shechem make Abimelech their king. 
we're going to see that there's this rebuke from Jotham, the one son who escapes, one of Gideon's, the one son of Gideon who escapes. He's going to tell this parable, which serves as a rebuke to the men of Shechem for their elevating Abimelech as their king. And then we're going to see the punishment of God unfold on the life of Abimelech and the lives of the men at Shechem. And it's going to be the bulk of this chapter is just God exacting retribution towards Abimelech and Shechem. And when we get to the end of Judges 9, we are going to be reminded that we reap what we sow. You guys will remember in this chapter um, that Abimelech seizes control after his father's death. He kills his half-brothers. He seizes control. Um, and things look like they're going okay for about three years. And then all of a sudden, the men of Shechem are like, ah, I'm not sure I like this guy too much. And they begin to, they recruit another guy and it all un unravels there. And what we see in the narrative is Jotham's parable. Remember the parable? Jotham says, the trees, there was this parable about the trees, fig tree, olive tree, etc. Hey, come rule over us. And like, hey, we're not going to go rule over people. We got stuff to do. We're like, I, I'm, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm a fig tree. I give great food for kings and men. And then they have this bramble, this thorn bush that comes and they says, hey, we, I'll come rule over you. And Jotham says, because of the way you've elevated this man, this bramble is gonna consume you with fire. And this bramble is going to be consumed with fire. And the rest of the chapter, we see a little bit of God acting that out. And there's this great law of the harvest, right? Which was, says, we will reap what we sow. You guys realize that is a spiritual law of gravity. You will reap what you sow, period. And so we're gonna talk in a little bit here about what are we reaping, but just know that that's what's unfolding here. In Judges 9, 50, towards the end, we see the summary statement where it says, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers, and God also made the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel, Gideon. And so we see this law of the harvest. I've got a slide up here that shows you exactly how the writer does this. We see Abimelech in Judges 9. Abimelech goes to Shechem and he incites the leaders to conspire with him against the sons of his father. That's what he's reaping. What does he sow? That act is answered by Gael's arrival in Shechem to incite the leaders to conspire with him against Abimelech. We see one, and then we see the, the, the tit for tat of God. Tit for tat's not really the great right phrase. We see God unfolding that retribution. Towards the men of Shechem, we see in Judges 9.25 that the men of Shechem set up an ambush uh, against Abimelech, right? And then we see in 9.34, the same Hebrew word, that uh, Abimelech answers that ambush by the men of Shechem by setting up his own ambush against the Shechemites in Judges 9.34. And he kills the uh, the Shechemites, when they come out of the city. Remember that towards the end? And then we see Abimelech, who we are told twice, kills his brothers on one stone in Judges 5, uh, 9, 5, and in Judges 9, 18, is himself killed by a stone which had been dropped on his head by a woman at Thebes, Judges 9, 53. And so we see God saying, what you reap is what you will sow. And he unfolds for us in this chapter, when you do this, here's the consequences, and you will be punished for what you have done. And when we get to the end of chapter nine, we see the law of the harvest at work, which is that we will reap what we sow. Galatians six, seven and eight, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, do not be deceived. God is not met, uh, mocked 
For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Proverbs 26, 27, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And a stone will come back on him who starts rolling it. And so I'm asking myself, I'm asking you right now, today, Last night before you went to bed, what are you reaping? Are you reaping towards the flesh or are you reaping towards the spirit? Are you, the things in your life today that you're doing, are they gonna bring life to you? Are they gonna bring life to your family? Are they gonna bring life to your community and your nation? Or are they gonna bring death? Because mark my words, men, we will reap what we sow. And so if your life today is marked by self-advancement at work, if it's marked by harshness with your wife, if you're married, with your kids, if you've got kids, if it's marked by lust, by an insatiable desire for more. And let's be honest, like all of us have that in us. And so the issue is not are you not struggling against those things? The issue is, are you waging war against them or are you just kind of going along? And like, like, I mean, I'm trying, but I'm not in my Bible. I'm not, I'm not taking in God's word. I'm not confessing my sins to my brothers and sisters who can pray for me and bear my burdens. I'm not uh, absorbing myself. I'm not taking pains to be the guy that God called me to be. Then you are sowing to the flesh and it's not gonna work out well for you. And I could go through my life and I could tell you time after time after time after time when I have sown to the flesh and I have reaped bitter tears. And I bet you could too. And so God's reminding us this morning, men, we've got to go deep with his people. We've gotta be deep in his word. And the second thing that this passage reminds us is that evil does not go unpunished. I look around at this, at this nation and I look at my seven kids and I'm like, how in the world are we gonna make it out of this? I mean, for me, it feels like the flywheel is spinning at a rate that is materially different than it was even 10 years ago. And I see evil seeming to win the day. And I'm reminded in Psalm 7 that behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes uh, a pit, he digs it out, and he falls into the hole that he's made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. And I'm reminded, as I get to the end of my Bible, and I think about God coming back, which I do more frequently today than I have ever, in Revelation 22, Jesus reminds us, the risen Christ reminds us, behold, I am coming soon. And I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. Jesus is coming back. And if we know him, right, we don't have to worry about where we're going to spend eternity with. And we can have confidence that, look, he's coming back. He's going to right the wrongs. The Abimelechs in our lives, in our nation, at your workplace, God's got that. He'll take care of it. Your job is to be a judge, a faithful man who leads himself 
who leads his family, who leads his folks his workplace and his neighborhood well under the name of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. That's our task, men. How are we doing? How are we doing? Father, would you uh, encourage our hearts? Would you inspire us to be the men you've called us to be? Thank you for Jesus uh, who has saved us and who has called us to himself. God, we know that there's nothing that's gonna separate us from the love of God in Christ. You tell us that in Romans 8. There's nothing we can do. And so I pray that we as men would rest on that truth and that we would be confident to be your men in this world today. Help us to not be Gideon the king or Abimelech the king. Help us to be godly men and women, uh, not women, men. Help us to be godly men who lead uh, like Gideon did in in, uh, Judges 6 to trust you with the little bit that you've given us to defeat and to be your men in a world that is full of Midianites. I pray that if there's guys in here who need to confess sin, I pray that it would be on their heart as a weight that would bear them down until they could come clean and confess their sins to one another and be healed. I pray for us as we head into our workplaces in the next little bit, that you would help us to be salt and light, that we would be different, that the way we love and serve and devote ourselves to you and to our coworkers would mark us so that we could tell people about the hope we found in Jesus. Thank you again for these men getting up early. Would you bless their day? Would you speak words of encouragement to their heart? Would you help us to be the men you called us to be? In Jesus' name, amen.